Christ is risen. So, um, during the next 50 days, uh, last week, the 50 days after the resurrection, we, we focus on the, the resurrected Christ. Um, and we, we do lots of different things during those 50 days. As you, you all know, we greet each other. Christ is risen. Truly, he's risen. Um, we have a very festive tone throughout the year. Um, there's no fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. There's no prostrations. And we say, Christos Anisti, or Christ is risen all the time. So no matter what the occasion, if it's a wedding, we start the wedding with Christ is risen. If it's a funeral, we start the funeral with Christ is risen. Um, it doesn't really matter. We're f- constantly focused on the resurrected Christ. And the question is, why? Why such a big deal about the 50 days? And the church ultimately just wants us to focus And at some level, this isn't the season to focus on my sins and repentance. That's the season of Lent. This is the season to focus on Christ and the resurrected Christ. Um, And the church takes drastic measures to make sure we do that. I mean, it's actually telling us not to fast. It's telling us not to do a matanya, not to do a prostration. It's almost forcing us to be festive. And the reason is, ultimately, the church can, you know, sometimes we can get a little too focused on ourselves and our sins and all the things, and we end up losing sight of who it is we're following. And so the church, like, like earth, has seasons. And there's a time for repentance, and there's a time for uh, happiness and joy, which is what we're in now. But today's gospel is about Thomas, and you've all just heard the gospel. Um, it's... Called, we call it Thomas Sunday. It's one of the minor feasts. And St. Thomas, by the way, carried the faith ultimately from the story all the way to India. So he preached all over the world. And eventually he was martyred in India and he started the Indian Orthodox Church. So as you may know, the, we're part of the what's called the non-Chalcedonian Orthodox Churches, um, Syrian, Antiochian, not Antiochian, Syrian, uh, Coptic, Indian, Armenian, there's another one. Huh? Ethiopian, sorry. Um, and Indian is, is one of them. Um, all right, so I want to read you the first part of the gospel, and that's what I want to focus on today. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were gathered together, so this was the night of basically the resurrection, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And so we can see that even on that very first day, the disciples aren't in great shape. Jesus rose that morning. The Marys had gone to the tomb. They found the tomb empty. Then Peter and John ran to the tomb. They also found the tomb empty. So it's clear they intellectually knew there had been something. There had been a resurrection. And they just didn't internalize it. I mean, of course, it's pretty weird, right? Not very many people rise from the dead, so it's not something anyone expects to happen. But simply put, they had it... maybe in their heads, but not in their hearts. And they were sad. Um, And, you know, they could have taken a very different perspective, right? They could have said, if death has no power over this, then who do we have to fear? From the Jews, from the Romans, from the government, from whomever, who would I fear? My God has overcome the undefeatable foe. But they didn't do that. They were scared. And sometimes we idolize the disciples and the apostles and we think of them as the, you know, the apostolic church and we follow the teachings of the apostles and they're these solid pillars of faith. They're unshakable and steadfast, but it's clear they weren't. Right? They clearly just witnessed the resurrection and they're still scared. 
scared of what the Jews are going to do to them, scared of what the Jews think of them, scared of what's going to happen to them next. And it's, it's kind of pathetic to see them witness the resurrection and then yet cower in fear, to sit in a room just all by themselves, locked away so that nobody can get to them. They were clearly fearful, they were clearly compromised, they were clearly weak, and they were clearly broken. And in short, they just really had no hope at that moment. And so the first thing we learn from this story is it's okay for me to be fearful and broken and weak and compromised. And sometimes all of us, our faith is tested. We get trials, we have difficulties in our life, and we feel broken and weak. And so the, the story, the, the, the nice part of the story is when you see these things in yourself, don't lose hope. Even the great disciples felt this exact same thing on the day of the resurrection, no less. And then Christ came to them to help overcome this fear. And he kept coming to them over and over for 40 days until they sort of figured it out. In fact, this morning in, the, in, the, in, the, in Matins, we read another story which happens where he appeared to them. They were fishing. They couldn't catch fish. And he appeared to them. And they, they caught a bunch of fish. And then they sat and they ate with him. And no one said a word because they kind of knew it was him, but they didn't want to say anything. Right? So you can, take, you can tell this just took them a long time to figure this out. And all of us take a long time to figure things out. As humans, we learn to let go, we learn to let God work, God reassures us, and then we lose faith again, and then we think to ourselves, oh no, you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, we, we learn slowly. More about this at the end. So, the next thing we learn from the story is whenever we see the disciples gathered together, we have to think, what is this? What is, what are the disciples gathered together? What's that a symbol of? Anyone? The church, right? That's the church. And now we see the church in a state of fear. And the question is, can the church ever be in a state of fear? Can it be shaken? Is it congruent with the concept of a church to be fearful and scared? Is that even possible? Sure. It's very possible. When? When Christ is not in their midst. And so it turns out that when you remove Christ from the church, from the community, from the midst of anything, it will be scared. Anything will scare it. Because the source of our power and our peace is Christ in our midst. And when Christ is not in the middle of us as a community, then the church becomes fearful. So let me ask this question a little differently. Is it possible that the church become a place where people are afraid to leave, to go out, to go outside because of all the bad people out there that are trying to get us, trying to get our kids. So we stay insulated, we stay cocooned, trying to avoid the people out there, the sinners. Does this sound familiar? This is the way that Satan kept the disciples scared and hidden. And this is the way that Satan keeps us scared and hidden. Can the church become this little community, this ethnocentric community that simply wants to stay locked away and hidden to avoid con contact with the outside world? Now, sometimes when you, we go to Egypt, we'll, we'll see churches with big walls and then like spears on the top of the walls, right? Like you stay out there and we'll stay in here. And in fact, we see this with the disciples, right? We see this even with the disciples and some of very other famous people. Who did the disciples also not trust? 
and not like and want them to stay out there while they stayed in there, in here. St. Paul. So it turns out St. Paul himself was distrusted by the apostles. They didn't really like him. They didn't really trust him. They didn't let him into the inner circle. And when he started talking about Jesus, they kind of looked at him like, you're not one of the chosen. You're not one of us. You didn't hang out with him like we did. What are you doing talking about him? And they didn't want to talk or meet with St. Paul for the longest time. It took him a while. And finally, Barnabas kind of gave him some street cred and, and you know, got him into the, into the group a little bit. That's the thing. And so the question is, why, doesn't, why did Jesus appear to them and start to end this, this cycle of fear that they were living in this little cocooned room? He didn't want them to be scared. He didn't want them to be scared of the outsiders, of the Jews, of sinners, of anybody. Why not? Why did Jesus want to stop that situation? Well, the question is, when you're scared of someone, can you love them? Can you love someone you're scared of? I mean, you have to think, did the disciples maybe hate the Jews as well? I mean, the Jews just killed their master. They're hunting them down. Now they're labeled as criminals. They've all been thrown out of the synagogue for sure. And so this state of fear and hate is a dangerous state. Because maybe it made the apostles hate the people outside that locked room, untrusting of anyone of their own kind, of their own language. And is this possible for us? Is it possible for the one holy Catholic apostolic universal church to become a small group of people who are hiding because we're scared of the outside, fearful of the unknown, hateful of people who don't act like us or talk like us or think like us, untrusting to outsiders? Yeah, that can happen. And so the church can devolve from this community of believers where Christ is in the midst of this universal church that's meant to go out and preach at the, end of the ends of the earth, to be the city set on a hill, to be the light of the world, to this little small group that's hidden and locked in a room. In this case, the church devolves into a cult. It devolves into us versus them. Our people, the, the outsiders, the other people, the Egyptians versus the Americans, the insiders versus the outsiders the whites and the browns, whatever you want to call it. And it loses its mission. And so let's kind of think about what's a cult. And is the church a cult? Well, there's lots of definitions for a cult. And one characteristic of a cult is that sometimes it uses isolation to kind of facilitate power, control. Isolation includes controlling people's social activity who they talk to, who they think about, where they go, and limit their access to what they, they read and they see. And we can never be allowed to devolve into that. When His Eminence started these American churches, he didn't want to call them mission churches, and people debated with him, you should call it a mission church. And his argument is that all churches need to be mission churches, not just these churches. And I never really appreciated the wisdom of that train of thought till I was preparing this sermon. He didn't want any of his churches to just be a group of people huddled around each other in a locked room. He wanted all the churches to go out and to be the light of the world, not live in fear of outsiders and, and possibly even hate them. So then what's the solution? Well, the gospel is clear today. They were scared of the Jews, but when they saw Jesus, they were suddenly filled with peace and they got courage and they went out and they started preaching and in fact, 
You all know that the disciples kept preaching, and they kept preaching until people told them, if you don't stop preaching, we will kill you. And then they said, then kill us. So they went from this very sad state that we see today to people on fire, fire with the knowledge of God. So the church can be in one of two states. The first state is Christ is not in our midst. Then we're in a state of fear. We're in a state of insulation. We're in a state of cocooning, hatred, mistrust of others. And in this case, we're a cult who, who tries to create division between us and them. Stay away from them. Stay away from the outsiders. But when Christ is in our midst, there's joy and peace, as it says today in the gospel. There is no fear. There's bravery. And there's a desire to leave the room, go out into the world, and declare to everyone, Christ is risen. He has trampled death by death. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? And that's the spirit of the apostolic church. The disciples, the gospel says the disciples were overjoyed. So let's think about our modern church. Christ is the center of our community. He's the cornerstone, as he said about himself. He's the one that ties all of us together and ties all of us to heaven. And if Christ is no longer the center, the church implodes. It's no longer what it's supposed to be, right? I mean, we see this when, when, you, you know, when, when, you, when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, right? When you all know this. I mean, if you leave a bunch of sheep on the side of a mountain and you leave for a day and you come back, there's no sheep there, right? They all just walk all over the place. And that's what happens when Christ is not the center of this church. And lots of things can replace Christ as the center of our community. We can focus on lots of different things, some spiritual, some not. We can fo focus on preserving our original state. We can focus on ethnicity. We can focus on activities. We can even focus on very religious things that aren't Christ-focused. And none of these things are wrong, but they can never be the center of our community. Christ has to be the center. So today we see the disciples gathered. They shared common history, common language, common master, common stories. They shared a lot of things, ethno ethnicity, and they shared a common enemy, the Jews, but they had no peace. They were still scared because Christ was not there. And so when Christ is in the middle of our community, it is characterized as a community of love. God is love, and a church that does not have love does not have God. And ultimately, we all have to be headed in the same direction. We all have to be focused on the same goal, and there's lots of different goals that can come up. You know, when you get on a plane every once in a while, the flight attendant will get on and say, you know, like, make a joke, like, we're all going to New York, right? You know, and if anyone's not going to New York, you know, ring your bell because you're going to the wrong place. And so when we're all facing the same direction, we're all, you know, pedaling in the same, in the same direction, then, then we all end up at the same place. And the question I have to ask is, what, do we, what would we have done with Thomas? What if one of us refused to believe? What if one of us refused to join and left? You know, Thomas was just walking around. He wouldn't sit with the disciples. He just went off looking for answers to his questions. What would we do to that person? We'd probably judge him. We'd ostracize him. We'd cut him off from our community. We'd talk about him and say, remember that guy? Yeah, well, he went off the deep end. Maybe we would have even hated Thomas. We would have demonized Thomas. We don't want Thomas near our children. Thomas is going to ruin our kids. We would have cut him off from our community, talked about him for weeks. Everyone would have jumped in and said, oh, you know what else I heard about Thomas? And everyone would have told the story. But I imagine that the apostles spent the week praying for him, thinking about him and loving him. And they wanted him to come back so they could see the Christ that they saw.
So let's go back to Thomas. How do we keep Christ in our midst? So interestingly, Thomas had no hope. He was just walking around, aimless. But then when Christ came, he gave him what he needed. And what did Christ give him? He touched Christ. Not as he touched him before as a teacher or a prophet or a rabbi. He touched him as the resurrected Christ, the same body that overcame death. And now Thomas, after touching the resurrection, was resurrected himself. Resurrected from his own lack of belief, his own lack of faith, his own sin. I want to talk about this touch. As an ancient church writer wrote, this also was the work of divine economy, that the absence of Thomas became a cause of full assurance and certainty. I want you to focus on these words. They're very important. The order is important here. It's important that Thomas wasn't there. And so what this father writes is, the absence of Thomas became a cause of full assurance and certainty. For if Thomas were present, he would not, he would not have doubted. And if he had not doubted, he would not have curiously sought. And if he had not sought, he would not have touched. And if he had not touched, he would not have proclaimed Lord and God. And if he had not called Christ Lord and God, then we would not have been taught to call him so. And so this father encourages the doubting Tom. This father encourages that exploration. It's okay for that investigation. It's okay to look around. It's okay to think about what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And in the end, he comes back with my Lord and my God. I was binge watching The Chosen over Lent. And as you watch the disciples, you can't help but think, seriously, <laughs> these are the people you entrusted the church to? It's almost like a bunch of you know, clowns. And one thing I noticed is that Jesus didn't spend much time teaching them. They kind of walked behind him, they followed him, but he didn't directly instruct them all that much. He did his thing and they watched and they learned and they absorbed. In short, he discipled them. And that's what it means to be a disciple. You just live with someone. You eat, you hang out, you tell jokes, you laugh, you work, and you watch. And I think about this calling that all of us have. Of course, our primary calling for many of us is, you know, some kind of service in the church, whether it be Sunday school, maybe for some of us it's parenting, a friend, a co-worker. And so what does it mean to disciple people? How much talking and preaching do you have to do to people? Not much. And how beautiful would it be is if every young person in this church had one other adult who discipled them in this church, who talked to them, who listened to them, who knew about their problems and their issues. It'd be amazing if everyone was touched by just one person, the way Thomas was touched by Christ. So what made Thomas believe? That touch. What made him come back? Thomas recognized Christ, and he recognized that love that Christ had. And Thomas, I'm sure, was just blown away. I'm sure Thomas thought to himself, did you come all the way back just for me? Do you really love me that much? And what do you think was the look in Thomas's eyes when he saw the look in Christ's eyes, that he came all the way back for him? So I want to say the, the last thing I want to say is our faith does not fear investigation. So in today's society, 
Your kids, our kids, they're taught to question everything. Ask questions, explore new ideas, and that's okay. It's normal. And as parents, Sunday school teachers, mentors, don't be fearful. Don't react with anger or indignation when they challenge the faith, which they will. Thomas did. And this is what Thomas did and many saints in history did. The issue that we have sometimes is that we are raised a particular way. We come from a culture, an Arab culture, where questioning authority is taboo. We believe in absolute power. You're supposed to immediately agree with your boss, your manager, your parent, the clergy, whoever it is. And that has never been the experience of Christianity. We ought to be patient with those who question, love them. And although some people attend meetings and they've grown up their whole life in church, they have doubts and they seek proof, and that's okay. We don't ostracize, we don't cut them off, we spend the week praying for them, we don't reject them. There's a good disbelief that has good intentions. And through our own good Christian behavior and patience and love and gentleness, we can win them to Christ if we take our time. So there's nothing to fear when investigation and someone says, I want to learn about this for myself. Absolutely. Knock yourself out. Christ is truth with a capital T. The more it's investigated, the more it shines forth. And so let us simply invite people to the Lord, as Thomas did. Just come and touch. Reach your fingers here. Come, examine every side. And Christ even offered him extra. You want to, you want to reach into my side as well? Anything else you need? He didn't condemn him for asking questions. He didn't attack him. He didn't say, how dare you challenge my resurrection? Those are the things we would say. And so come to the church, drink from the fountains, eat bountifully, explore this immovable mountain. So the answer to the question is, the church is not a cult. It is not because we have, it's because, sorry, it is because we have Christ in our midst and he is the source of peace. So we have nothing to fear. And when he is in our midst, we do not fear outsiders. We love them. We do not huddle around distrusting of people outside of our walls. We invite them. And we don't wait for people to come to us. Rather, we go out to them. We become the light of the world, not the light of the church. With confidence, we go to our friends at school, family, coworkers, colleagues, and in our own actions and not with our words, proclaim that Christ is risen, truly he is risen. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? And glory be to God forever. Amen.